0: Hey there, and welcome to PNN. It is Sunday, April 11. I'm your host, Brooke Hines, and we've got to get right to it because we've got a lot of content for you tonight. I've got an interview that I'm going to play here in just a second with uh, Eric Linden and Joe Kishore of WSWS.org, uh, following up on some work that they've done on um, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez. And I thought was really interesting and I wanted to bring you guys the historical analysis that they have done on AOC because I think it is really important and uh, critical for how we understand that particular politician and you know All of our politicians need to be seen in in the context from which they come. Uh, Specifically, we are looking at the history of DSA, so look out for that in just a moment. And also, we have Janine Maloff with the Justice Report tonight doing part two of Jim Crow uh, 2.0. And this uh, this, uh, time, she's looking at corporate connections to voter suppression, so look out for that. Round about the top of the hour, but let's just get ahead or go ahead and get started with uh, my interview with Eric and Joe. Up next, I have an interview with Eric London and Joe Kishore of the WSWS, and they came to my attention after two articles. Uh, there's been more, but the two that actually got my attention. The first one was um, AOC denounces socialist and praises Biden administration and Democratic Party. The second one is the Democratic Party and the political origins of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. The first article was notable because in that one, uh, we're looking at the history of the DSA as a way to kind of explain some of the inexplicable things that AOC said in her profile in the DSA newsletter. The publication is called The Democratic Left. This is that uh, long article that came out at the end of March um, and set off a flurry of, of criticism or of commentary because of some of the things that she said. In the DSA newsletter, and one of the things she said is, people well, who have a critique of the Biden administration or of his le- of of his record, she said that uh, that that's a privileged critique uh, as far as she's concerned. Uh, we're going to have to focus on solidarity with one another, developing our senses uh, for good faith critique and bad faith critique. Now that language is language that I have already flagged in my article the supercharged McCarthyism, and I think that it's indicative of a public relations campaign or indicative of a set of talking points that you might notice people on social media are either hewing to very closely or ignoring completely and are like, what's wrong with you people? So I thought it was important to and very valuable to talk to both Eric and Joe on the subject of these two articles because there are some really interesting bits and pieces in here and I think that everybody can benefit from taking a look at both of them. When I first reached out to Eric, it was because I noticed that in his first article, and this is the one that is Uh, again, uh, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez denounces socialists and praises Biden administration and the Democratic Party, I noticed that he does a historical critique that is very valuable. And I think that that article is more about the historic critique and less about the couple of paragraphs that he cites. And I think it's actually, if you want to talk about good faith critique and bad faith critique, people who are calling this particular piece a bad faith critique without even noticing that this is a historic analysis are, you know, maybe they're not participating in bad faith per se, but let's say that they've completely ignored what the actual article is about. And I'm not prepared to say whether that's good faith or bad faith. Okay. Um, Whereas they might be, perfectly fine ascribing good faith or bad faith to people, uh, you know, pretty much based on whether or not they belong in the same tribe, okay? That seems to be what's going on here. So let's have a discussion with Eric and Joe uh, about the historical analysis that comes along with all of this AOC stuff, and let's see where that goes. Eric London is a writer for WSWS and a member of the National Committee of the Socialist Equity or Equality Party in the United States. He is the author of numerous essays on security and the fourth international investigation by the ICFI into the assassination of Leon Trotsky. And he has a book, Agents. The FBI and GPU infiltration of the Trotskyist movement, which I bought but I have not read yet, because that sounds fascinating. Now, Joe Kishore uh, and I have met uh, prior on a uh, Action for Assange uh, show about a year ago. Joseph is, or Joe, is the National Security or National Secretary of the Socialist Equality Party, and uh, and was the um, presidential candidate for 2020, and there's some stuff going on there that I think is very interesting. Uh, Kishore joined SCP in 1999 after becoming politically radicalized by the Clinton administration's war against Serbia. Uh, over the past two decades, he has written hundreds of articles for the World Socialist website, and as a national secretary, has directed the party's intervention in the struggles of workers and youth, and welcome both of you, and thank you so much for coming to discuss uh, some of these issues of history.
1: Hi, thanks. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us.
0: Super. So so this article, and uh, the first one was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez denounces socialists and praises Biden administration and Democratic Party. This came out on March 25 and it was it was a, a a response to her profile in democratic left which is the DSA's newsletter so it's all very public relationsy uh and so she kind of let it hang out is kind of the way I was looking at it and she was a little bit more comfortable with you know being the forward about you know, some of the things that they were about. And Eric, you did a really good job of of pulling out some of the things that AOC said in that article that I think a lot on the left would kind of put a hairy eyeball towards. And one is this idea of bad faith actors. Uh and I'm gonna come back to that. So I wanna put a pen in that. But bad faith actors is one of the things that she brought up and she also said that Um, that uh, uh, for anyone who brings up uh, opposition to the Biden administration's administration, we really have to ask ourselves, what is the message you are sending to black and brown and undocumented members of your community? Uh, And the idea there is that 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 is a privileged position to have a critique of the Biden administration. Now, I think that the article has been discussed a whole lot from the standpoint of, uh, you know, is this a fair critique, or or do you agree with the critique, or do you not? That the the particular critique that that Eric has. But what I think everybody missed in this article is if you flip the page from where where the discussion of the critique begins, Eric goes into this history of who the DSA is, and where they came from. And I happened to have geeked out about that enough in college to recognize all of these players and all of this history, and I just said to myself, oh, my God, he's the only person who's getting this right now. So that's why I I was so enthusiastic, and I wanted to bring you on and and talk a little bit, Eric and, and Joe. We'll start with Eric. Tell us who DSA is, where they come from, and why that's important.
2: Sure. Well, first, thanks for having us. Um, uh, first, it's not not necessarily the case that I'm the only person. I just to clarify, I, uh, the World Socialist website, and many other um, writers in our movement in the United States and internationally have written extensively on the Democratic Socialists of America for many years. Now, this particular article got such a broad response, I think, for two reasons. Number one, because of the words that came out of Vocasio cortezs mouth, um, which we uh, quoted at length um, in the article, and number two, because there's been a shift in popular consciousness, a movement to the left, growing frustration among many DSA members over the pro-imperialist Um, and just openly pro-Democratic Party um, orientation of the organization's leadership. So for us, as you indicate, Brooke, the main point is not to see this as a personal betrayal by Ocasio-Cortez. We're less concerned with the personality issues involved, far more concerned in what this tells us about the organization, the Democratic Party, and the role that the DSA plays in it. Um, and the historical issues are fundamental. You can't understand what an organization represents, what a politician represents, just based on the words they use about themselves. Ocasio-Cortez calls herself a socialist. Sometimes she calls herself a capitalist, but she does attempt to present herself as a socialist. The DSA, of course, tries to present itself as socialist as well. It's in the name. Um, but. If one looks at the history and the evolution of this organization, it is very clear that this is actually not an organization which has any independence in any way, politically speaking, from the Democratic Party itself. And we can get into some of the examples dating back to its founding, dating back even before its founding, and uh, dealing with some of the individuals who we reference in the article um, who facilitated the uh, founding of the DSA, including Michael Harrington uh, and his um, his political mentor Max Shachtman. Um, but I just would say from the onset that that uh, we really do have an obligation as socialists to take a very serious historical approach. Um, you really can't understand a party, a pol- a pol- any political phenomenon, without really getting beneath the surface beneath the impressions of the latest headlines and analyzing its whole historical development.
0: I absolutely agree. And, uh, and, you know, we, uh, when we live on social media, we're not giving ourselves the opportunity to hook into that history, or at at least we're not doing a great job of it. Uh, i the way that I try to try to consume media is I try to follow writers like yourselves and, and follow you closely on Twitter so that I'm seeing what, what you're uh, promoting and and what you're writing and then go like over to YouTube or over to uh, my, my Kindle reader or whatever. So that I'm getting longer form because we're not, it's not enough to just take in these, uh, these uh, articles these these interviews and these articles and these thoughts as they come uh, across the surface there's a lot more going on so uh, Joe tell me a little bit one of the things that, that struck me about the history of the DSA coming out of this uh, uh, moment in in uh, with, with Michael Harrington is that there was a lot of friction there was a lot of anti-communism that I don't think people totally grok anymore. Like uh, when I was in college in the eighties and grad school in the early nineties, the the end of the cold war was a big deal. And we were acutely aware of what that meant. And I think we've lost some of, some of the, the flavor of that or, or or some of the, the urgency of that, but but being anti-communist was a big effing deal in, in the 60s, and that was a, uh, a, an intentional uh, swagger. It was, it was intentional that they put that foot forward, that we want to be known as anti-communist. So what is, what is that whole beat about in this, in this story?
1: Uh, sure. Um, well, uh, the DSA itself was formed uh, in 1972 uh, through the merger of uh, Michael Harrington's Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee uh, and an organization that came out of the SDS called the New America Movement. Uh, Harrington, uh, prior to uh, forming the uh, Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee, uh, had been a, a very close, one of the leading uh, figures that was around Max shackman shackman was, as Eric said, his political mentor. They were both in the Socialist <laughs> Party. Uh, Max shackman had uh, split with the Trotskyist movement uh, back in 1940, and perhaps we will have an opportunity to discuss some of the issues uh, involved in that split, but really at its center was uh, an adaptation to American imperialism, and uh, what was then to emerge later as post-war anti-communism. Of course, that was still during the uh, Second World War, Uh, but that element of of anti-communism really characterized Shackman's politics as he moved ever further to the right after splitting with the uh, Trotskyist movement. Uh, while, the, uh, while both Harrington and Shackman and others were uh, in the Socialist uh, Party and playing leading roles in the Socialist Party during the late 1960s, uh, the question of anti-communism particularly uh, emerged in relationship to the Vietnam War protest movement. Uh, and they took a very right-wing position, uh, even in, in relationship to the Students for a Democratic Society. Uh, which was the student-led movement that became very active in the uh, Vietnam War protests, uh, of criticizing that uh, movement from the right, uh, from the standpoint of anti-communism, that it was not sufficiently uh, anti-communist. Before the Vietnam War, Shackman had actually already supported the Korean War uh, in the 1950s and the Bay of Pigs uh, invasion uh, of Cuba. Uh, and then, as the Vietnam War progressed, uh, they took the position uh, on the on the right wing. Uh, in fact, they set up organizations which were aimed at uh, promoting anti-communism and sort of policing the anti-war uh, movement. Uh, they set up an organization called Negotiations uh, Now during the Vietnam War protest movement. And again, the explicit the, the explicit position, was that of anti-communism. Uh, Essentially, and that was uh, utilizing uh, uh, the false uh, association of Stalinism uh, with communism in order to characterize communism, Marxism, as inherently anti-democratic, and to uh, adapt and support uh, American imperialism. Actually, Shackman had the private view that his position was that the United States should win uh, in Vietnam. They didn't advance that view publicly. Uh, They they had a somewhat more nuanced uh, position of, well, they they opposed uh, immediate withdrawal of troops from Vietnam and called for negotiations. But that was – it was a a very uh, right-wing, anti-communist, pro-imperialist position of the Schachmanite movement with which Harrington uh, was associated, and out of which uh, the the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee and then the DSA – uh, emerged harrington himself broke with uh, shackman very late uh i think it was in nineteen uh seventy that he actually split with Shackman and, and went on to form the, the S.O.C. and then the and then the b s a but that was the politics the politics of pro, it was a pro was it the pro pro imperialist anti communism that was at the center of the formation of the b s a
0: and um you mentioned the pro imperialist kind of tinge to this that is, that is one of the things that people started noticing about AOC from the very beginning was that she was not quite on the same page with everyone else with regard to uh, matters having to do with war and with imperialism. She uh, she took the wrong side on, on a couple of issues, and there was a lot of consternation about that, like, what's going on with that? And... I feel like there's a lot of insight to be had in in the second article that is the Democratic Party and the political origins of Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, where uh, there's a, where you bring in another person, Nomiki Konst, as one of these Democratic Party operatives who is tied into the Truman National Security Project, which is a big, you know, U.S. imperialist. Uh, 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 project. It's an organization that uh, acts as a vendor to other organizations and provides training. And I, I think that's how Nomiki uh, Const was was involved with them. But that that's who that's who brought up AOC. Uh, that 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 AOC had graduated college. And it, her story isn't isn't quite what we thought it was. And this article really opened my eyes because uh, some of the dates that that we thought were uh, part of AOC's timeline. Uh, we all thought that she had joined DSA and then decided to run for office. And it looks like it's the other way around that she, uh, she had been uh, one of these new leaders that, uh, was coming up through the entrepreneurial of uh, uh what is that called where they have a i want to say a steam room <laughs> uh but but those those entrepreneurial uh settings where where you're supposed to come up with a business plan and launch a business incubator that's it uh, and I had been involved in in one of those groups here in orlando and by golly they were associated with the national truman uh with the truman national security project as one as a vendor for their training and you know this is when i started to think what the heck are these people about um but it was one of those things as someone who was doing organizing in central florida they started people started like picking you out, you know, and saying, Oh, why don't you go over here and do this leadership training? And why don't you go over there and, and, and go do this? Because we're interested in bringing you up as a leader. And so all these young people, and like, I was the oldest person there for sure. Uh, all of these young people are like, Oh my God, they're going to run me for office. This is great. And so they're all ears. They're going to listen to everything that's being said with AOC that organization it seems like was brand new congress and that as she was being groomed to run uh and you know looks like she was working with nomiki Cons from very early on uh then they decided to kind of back into dsa is that kind of is that right is that what the the article is kind of putting out there yeah well and i this is really
2: elucidative of uh, how the democratic party functions and if there's anybody any of your listeners who are out there who may think well sure there's the establishment democratic party but there's also plenty of good people and activists or or however they may want to put it they should um disabuse themselves of such naive notions about this party this is an this is a party of the american state it's a party of the Pentagon. It's a party of the State Department, of the CIA. Um, it is American capitalism. It's not uh, an institution which is a battleground for um, p- you know the political representation of the working class. And you see in how they picked up Ocasio-Cortez, a very clear example of the essential dynamic of Democratic Party politics, which is – to unlike the Republican Party, which is more and more just becoming a basically a fascist political party, um, who, which Trump represents and all it, his degeneration. But the Democrats have attempted over the course of 200 years to present in various different iterations that it is a, a progressive or popular party. Um, it, 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 I don't want to go through every example, but in the last 50 years, and this is where the role of the Democratic Socialists of America is so critical in making this work, not only specifically with Ocasio-Cortez, and that's correct. I mean, I, I actually thought one of the most re- revealing elements of the interview, which she did in Democratic Left, was where she acknowledges for the first time when she joined the DSA. And based on the information which she provides, it was only after um She uh, was selected by the Democrats to run for office, which shows how the Democratic Party and the DSA help each other. Um, And this is all, again, inside the Democratic Party. Uh, But, you know, when you go back and, and Joe was just mentioning the, for example, you take the foundation of the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee. There's actually there's an article which the DSA themselves published in 2017 on its own history. And if you just go through, if I might just quote a couple of sections of this document on its origins, because it just really shows the DSA's fundamental role in providing a left face for a political party which is carrying out unspeakable crimes. Its founded, DSOC, the organizing committee, is founded in 1972 or 73, in the middle of the Vietnam War, in a in a under circumstances where the Democratic Party has just presided over a convention in 68 where the anti-war protesters were physically beaten by the police of Democratic Mayor Daley um, under conditions where Democratic-controlled cities had just erupted in a series of urban rebellions. Um, and out of this, there was a real need to present a new uh, the breakdown of Johnson's Great Society under the pressure of under the under the pressure of the, Viet, the Vietnam War, um, and there was a need to prop this decrepit reactionary imperialist institution, dripping in the blood of the three million people killed in the Vietnam War, um, with some sort of left face. Uh, I mean, interrupt me if I don't want to just give a, a a very very long answer, but. This document I was referencing uh, on the DSA's history says both DSOC and the NAM, the New America Movement, had made modest but significant contributions to the trade union, community organizing, and feminist movements, as well as to rebuilding left labor coalition within and without the Democratic Party. And the without is just always sort of thrown in to politically legitimize the within part. Though shaped by distinct cultural and historical experiences, And then it goes on to say the independent social – they were founding an organization um, based on a coalition with non-socialist progressives. And they always put that phrase in this document because that's their essential line. They have to work within the Democratic Party. So that's 1972. Um, They were – in Harrington's case, who was the founder and head of DSOC – Uh, was a supporter of George McGovern, the Democratic candidate um, in 1972. And then they founded this so-called Democratic Agenda, uh, which was a pressure group on the Democratic Party throughout the 1970s. So this um, article continues. It said, Democratic Agenda began as the Democracy 76 Project DSOC put together a labor-left coalition to fight for a real commitment to full employment at the 1976 Democratic Convention. The height of Democratic Agenda's influence came in the spring of 1978 when, at the Democratic Party Midterm Convention, dot, 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 and on and on. Then it had a draft Ted Kennedy movement, which this document says the fullest political expression of the Democratic Agenda campaign. So – it is a, and it was an attempt to breathe left air into this dying body. Um And the last thing I'll, I'll say on this point, you have to consider the 1970s was. A- oh,
3: I think we lost you.
2: Joe, are you
0: still there?
1: Yeah, I'm still here. I can try to see if I can get him back, or do you want to? Yeah, uh,
0: yeah. Let's see, see if we can get him back. He was, he All was, right, he was hi, right sorry, there. Now back. Now no, no, he's back. No, he's okay. Back.
2: Great. All right. Uh, anyway, that was uh, that was the end of my response. Anyway.
0: Oh, that was great. I mean that yeah, that really uh, puts a. Uh, <laughs> puts a cherry on top because there's a similarity there between the project that, that they were doing in the 70s, which was, you know, in, in other words, to move Carter left. Uh, it, it's similar to the way that they're being marketed now, which is uh, moving Biden left. And what we're seeing, instead of moving Biden left, these same people are now, Let's go back to the bad actors thing. Now they're saying anybody who's coming forth with a, uh, with, with a criticism of Biden is doing so as a bad actor and doing so with, with bad faith, you know, instead of actually uh, engaging this project that they, you know, said, you know, this is, this is what we will be doing. We will be moving him left, and it's going to be great. Trust us. And you know, here we are, and all of a sudden, it's like, uh, oh, you're all a bad bunch of bad faith actors, and uh, you know, fascist adjacent, and all of this kind of nonsense. So, uh, it, it, I guess, I guess where where I want to go from from here is uh, is, you know, like like maybe like for Joe, maybe let's take this up a notch because this isn't just about uh electoral politics in the United States. There are much bigger uh issues on the table and I think that I think that since the Vietnam and since uh, since there hasn't been a draft, we don't have such an urgency about imperialism, but what is going on here is 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 essentially uh, we we've got both parties that are protecting profits internationally through the threat of killing people. I mean, essentially, I and mean, if you look at what what's going on with wars for oil, and you know the way that we're treating Venezuela with regard to uh, you know their oil and Vesa and the lithium in Bolivia, it's all it's all about who 's going to come out on top, and I feel like there's an urgency here that Americans are not clued into about a multipolar world and in, in u s hit versus u s hegemony and so do you have any thoughts on kind of internationally like like American leftists uh, if you could tell them anything or or grab them by the collar and shake them awake? what would you want them to know about U.S. imperialism and how that needs to inform our our work as American leftists?
1: Well, uh, there cannot be a fight for socialism without a fight against imperialism. There can be no fight against imperialist war without a, a fight for socialism. The fight against imperialism and the fight against capitalism are both bound up. Uh, inextricably with the development of a working class, uh, independent working class movement in opposition to the uh, both political parties of the ruling elite, uh, including the the Democratic Party. Uh, and I'll, I'll make a couple more p- comments on that. I just wanted also though to underscore, and I think obviously these are related issues. What Eric is taking up. I think that it's really what, what's really essential to understand that DSA, it is a faction. Uh, of the Democratic Party. Uh, this is, you know, this is an organization that, as, as Eric reviews, has been uh, in the Democratic Party since its inception, beginning with the campaign of uh, McGovern in in 1972. I just wanted to cite um, Michael Harrington's, uh, and you can find this also on the DSA website if you go back. Uh, with the, on their their past issues of the democratic left, and you go back to the very first one, uh, and this is from March of uh, 1973, uh, and there's an essay in there uh, by Harrington called "The Left Wing of Realism," and this is sort of a founding document of the uh, DSA, and I think it, it you know this this really is the the essence of what the DSA has been throughout its history. He says that. Uh, that the program of the DSA will be a program located on the left wing of realism. That is to say, on the left wing of uh, bourgeois politics. And he says, and these are words that could be, you know, you could read from Boschkar Sankara today. He says, we believe that the left wing of realism is today found in the Democratic Party. It is there that the mass forces for social change are assembled. It is there that the possibility exists for creating a new first party in America, And he concludes, we do not want to purge the new politics from the Democratic Party. We choose rather to help bring out its best potential. Uh, The Nixon era could end in 1976, but that can come to pass only if there is a united political movement of the American liberal left in the Democratic Party. And they have been so-called pushing the Democratic Party to the left for nearly half a century, uh, and the Democratic Party has, in fact, moved further and further to the right, and the DSA has uh, gone lockstep uh, with them. And now, uh, in the, in the uh, Biden administration, and their real role is to police the left, to, to, uh, to, to try to quarantine workers and young people from genuine socialism, to always try to keep it trapped within the framework of the Democratic Party. And there, the question of, you know, imperialism is is uh, very central. I mean, the Democratic Party is a party of Wall Street uh, and the military uh, and the CIA and the intelligence agencies. Um, you know, and th- there is, uh, and, and you see that. I mean, even Ocasio-Cortez's glowing statement after the death of McCain, uh, John McCain, the senator, he never knew a war he didn't support. Uh, one of the arch supporters of war against Iran, against Russia. Uh, China, you name it, of course, Iraq, uh, Latin America. When, she died, when he died, Ocasio-Cortez declared him a, a model of uh, American patriotism. Sanders made a similar statement. But, it, I mean, this is the Democratic Party. Uh, and I think that, I mean, there's, there's enormous opposition to war within the United States among workers and young people. Back in 2003, there were mass, hundreds of thousands of uh, protest demonstrators against the Iraq war. What happened to all that? Well, it was channeled uh, into the Democratic Party. It was channeled, ultimately, behind the election of Obama uh, in 2008, the supposed candidate of hope and change, uh, who continued the wars, expanded the drone killings, uh, escalated the persecution of Julian uh, Assange. Uh, you know, that's, that's the, the Obama, the first American president who was at war for a full the full two terms in office. Uh, that's the Democratic Party, and the role of the DSA very much is to uh, attempt to uh, maintain political domination of this organization. That's, that's been its role throughout its entire history.
0: Yeah, and you know they they kind of seem to come out of nowhere with uh, with with the the rise of Bernie Sanders and AOC. Like I I think that a lot of people were were surprised to find out there was a DSA, uh, you know, when when Bernie was was talking about democratic socialism and uh, and they got a lot of boots on the ground, you know, people to knock doors. That is some major, uh, that's a major asset to bring to the Democratic Party. And when AOC uh, was working with brand new Congress to run for that for to run for Crowley seat, uh, DSA was who brought. the the boots on the ground to knock all those doors to make that a true uh, grassrootsy, you know, kind of, uh, kind of a um, campaign. Uh, They, they they pretty much brought it as a, as a, uh, um, as a toolkit, like it was already there. Like they already had like all of the people ready to canvas and, and and do all the stuff. and, you know, it just makes me wonder: is, is there is there anything? And, and this, this Eric, this might have come from from your interview with Lee Camp, but I think you might have been talking about uh, pressure from below, and uh, and that when there's pressure from below, that it's met with more vicious pressure from from above uh and and i think you were i think the conversation was somewhat about how uh how we think we imagine that that uh that you bring these pressure campaigns to bear within the democratic party and you think that that's going to create change because that's what they tell you it's going to do but instead of that happening you're met with even more vicious pushback
2: that's exactly right that's the dynamic of Democratic Party politics, and that's why the argument that the DSA makes—that um, well, we're not we're not really helping the Democratic Party because we're also applying pressure to the Democratic Party. That's that's part of the um, political argument which the DSA uses against the the uh, actual left, that is um, the socialist left, uh, and. I you just have to look at the last 50 years to see whether that's whether that's true or not. Again, um I mean you go through this DSA document and they in the section that deals with the 1980s, they describe our work in the 1984 Democratic presidential primary. They, you know, explain this is just if if the strategy of pressuring the Democratic Party worked works, then why has um The DSA existed over the exact period, you know, 72 or 82 to present, which marks an extraordinary right-wing shift. I mean, the Democratic Party was always a right-wing organization, but um, even further, I mean, this is the party of, as as Joe was indicating, of of, of, uh, 30 years of permanent war, of the war on terror, the attack on democratic rights, bailing out the banks, the CARES Act which some DSA members supported in Congress, um, and the trillions that it provided for the corporations in the midst of mass suffering, which we're still going through in the uh, pandemic. Um, but there, So pressuring the Democratic Party doesn't work. Uh, and what actually works is building a mass movement of the working class, harnessing its independent strength. That's what we're, – we're a Trotskyist organization. Leon Trotsky was uh, alongside Vladimir Lenin, one of the co-leaders of the Russian Revolution of 1917. Um, and Trotsky was uh, a, a brilliant revolutionary leader and also a theoretician who developed the uh, theory of permanent revolution. Um, and that is really an essential uh, question which socialists out there um, even those who may not consider themselves Trotskyists should really study the theory of permanent revolution, which is the exact opposite of the argument that the DSA puts forward about pressuring the capitalist class. And that's an argument which has come up in various ways throughout the history of the socialist movement. Um, but the theory of permanent revolution is based on – I can't give you know as detailed of an answer as I would like in this format – but the political and uh, – two basic fundamental principles. Number one, the political independence of the working class from all uh, bourgeois institutions and parties. That is that it's, its potential strength as the producing class under capitalism, the exploited but also the revolutionary class, um, can only be activated through alerting it um, of, its, of, its indep- of its strength when it acts independently. And on its own behalf, um, and also the second element is the international unity of the working class, and that's why when Joe is discussing very critical issue of of Harrington's uh, support for American imperialism, the uh, that that really again is a confirmation in the negative of of what socialism is, which is the theory of permanent revolution. So that's that's what we. You know, we we at the Socialist Equality Party and the International Committee of the Fourth International um, and the World Socialist website we're we're proposing a completely different political orientation that I hope that your um, your listeners uh, will investigate.
0: I do too, and um, and of of course they can find information on the World Socialist website with regard to uh, all of this that. Uh, um, theory, there's the marxist library there's information on the Fourth International. This is a lot of history I know for a lot of people but but you know, hey, this is the story of our struggle this is the story of of who we are, and it's also offering um, a a broad a map you know to find a way out of, of this because we 've been stuck in the same uh cycle now for 50 plus years and and we've lost ground if you look at, at what was going on in the 30s and 40s and you know then what happened after that we actually lost some ground we we lost a lot of power there were a lot of compromises made uh to uh you know with regard to World War II and not you know coming together to fight the fascists, and then and then it was coming together to fight the communists. And, you know, now I, I fear that we are getting ready to uh, have this new confrontation that involves Russia and China, uh, who seem to have um, uh, gotten ahead of the United States. Like, while well, the United States was all playing this whole Russiagate silliness and, uh, and you know, and the Democratic Party was really showing their true colors with regard to uh, how they um, uh, are co-opted with the intelligence community, while all of that nonsense was happening, China and Russia and, and the rest of the world were over there going, well, how are we going to um, – how are we going to get ahead while the United States is over there just uh, being really dumb all by themselves, and and you know it really worked in their favor, um, but but I feel like I, I feel like uh, you know we could in in the next short while we could see a a, a flare up in uh, in Donbas Donbas region in in Ukraine. Uh, of course, that's just a proxy. That's just a place, you know, where NATO can, you know, start start their their conflict. It won't be necessarily about that. Um, and uh, and then everything that um, the American left, especially young youngsters in the American left, have been working on, like Medicare for all, and and these and these domestic issues. They're going to be lost because all of a sudden we're going to find ourselves in another international situation that has to do with imperialism and and you know I, I just feel like we don't have the consciousness that we used to have about uh, you know war being bad <laughs> you know there isn't a, a, the, the anti-war sentiment that 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 we used to have and people really quick. Turn on a dime and become these support the troops kind of pod people, and ignore what's actually going on on the chessboard.
1: Although, if I could just jump in on that, I think that uh, I think there's a lot of opposition to war among the broad mass of, of workers and, and young people. I mean, one of the perversions uh, of the uh, election of of the fascist Trump. Uh, was that he was able to tap into a certain uh, hostility uh, to war because Clinton was correctly seen as a, a, a candidate of, of the military, a war monger who's going to continue the, and expand the wars in the, in the Middle East. I think the problem is that there's not an expression within the political system uh, of, uh, of, of opposition to war, and that's tied up with the fact that the whole political structure is dominated by two parties that represent the capitalist oligarchs. And that the critical question is to turn to the working class. I think that you know, one of the central issues that really is important to understand is that the working class is the social force uh, that can oppose uh, imperialism, uh, that it can oppose inequality and exploitation, that can put an end to this pandemic that has killed over two uh, over a million people worldwide. Uh, over 500, well, uh, I don't know if the latest figures are on the, on the worldwide, but over 570,000 uh, in the United States, 570,000 people as a result of the fact that all policy was subordinated to the interests of the rich. It's the working class that has to be, uh, the, the social force that has to be mobilized. And if you look at, this again, I mean, there's enormous, uh, there's a lot that one can talk about in relationship to the history of the DSA, but really at its root, and this goes back to Shackman and certainly to, to Harrington's early conceptions, was a rejection of politics based on the working class, which is really fundamental to the socialist perspective, uh, that socialism as a political movement expresses the objective interests of the working class as a class. In 1966, Harrington said, the theory of the working class's historical mission has been undermined by the technological revolution. No single class but a coalition of progressive social forces is now necessary to achieve a radical democratic transformation of society. And what that was, it was a rejection of the Marxist, the Trotskyist perspective uh, of the working class as the as a social force uh, to achieve socialism, to oppose capitalism. Uh, but that – and it's been – I mean, if you think about it, the, the period of the formation of the DSA to the present has been the period of the uh, – complete refutation of the perspective of social reform and working within the Democratic Party. It's been a half a century of, of unending rightward trajectory of bourgeois politics. And far from the working class being somehow diminished in its political significance, it's become all the more sig- uh, important, uh, all the more central. The international working class is billions of people. The working class has grown as an objective social force as a result of the incredible growth of social inequality. Uh, the, the expansion of capitalism all over the world. So, the, you know, our the perspective of socialism is oriented to the working class, It's not oriented to the democratic party or what, what another faction of the bourgeoisie in, in the United States or in any country. It's oriented to the independent intervention of the working class, and that's the basis for also for a fight against imperialism, for a fight against war. It's the, the working class, and that, you know, anyway, I think that's so central to the. Uh, The the last question I'll just make, sorry, just make a point that, you know, and perhaps we can speak about it more, but the way in which identity politics, and again, this is entirely connected to the whole historical evolution of the DSA, but the way in which identity politics has been utilized by the Democratic Party uh, as an instrument for both, you know, opposing genuine left-wing socialist politics and also sort of giving a facelift to American imperialism. Uh, and that's been very much at the center of the of the whole politics of the DSA as well from its inception.
0: I'm so glad you brought that up because that is central to uh I I think a lot of the struggles that uh, the, the the people that I'm seeing people on the American left have and and that is that you've got um every time the working class tries to assert itself uh in terms of our class interests you get this pushback of uh you, you know i don't want to say just fall short of call, calling people racist but they're literally calling people racist and fascist at this point if they uh, put the emphasis on on class you know like a, like as if class essentialism is a bad thing class essentialism and and focusing on on that part of it is what brings us together is what brings solidarity uh, across all of the identities. And it's not about leaving identities out, but, but, but they, they were very cynical about that move. uh, Harrington was, they were very aware of what they were doing uh, by, you know, fracturing things out in terms of, you know, here's, here's, Uh, Here's a little women's movement and y'all can have that. And here's, here's the, uh, you know, um, the black is beautiful back in the day, you know, and you can have that. And, and, you know, there's the Latino movement over here and you can have that. And they're all going to be siloed and they're all going to be separate. And so no one, uh, it, it was designed so no one could ever get any traction.
2: Well, the, and, and Ocasio-Cortez reserves the most um, vicious attack in her interview in Democratic Left for what she calls the class essentialists. Uh, and she, this is where I think the, it's really the most important single sentence in her whole interview because she says that class essentialists um, deprioritize human rights. And if you really follow the logic of that, that's an argument for censoring socialists. That's an argument for not that she's necessarily saying this or that she necessarily believes it, but it is an argument for throwing socialists in jail like the Democratic Party did during the First and Second World Wars. And um, it's really the, the bringing together, you know, the tying of the knot of the whole historical trajectory, rightward trajectory, of um Harringtonite politics. and And Harrington actually said in an interview with the New York Times in 1984, he said, the Marxist left of the 1930s had a vision of the proletariat as a single cohesive agent of social change. Everybody remotely aware of what is going on has abandoned that perspective. That's the end of the quote. Now, Actually, our movement, the Socialist Equality Party, which until um, the mid 1990s was known as the Workers' League, was actually uh, we had we had not at all abandoned that perspective. And the Trotskyist movement has always fought uh, to 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 fight for the um, popularization of, as Joe was explaining, the the revolutionary role of the working class. And we our view as Marxists, and I think that this is why. It's really important those listening um, understand why we place such attention on the historical questions. Uh, Trotsky makes the point that he he makes it in a number of places, but he says in a 1924 article, The School of Revolutionary Strategy, he says that when the bourgeoisie faces the terrible threat of destruction, it renders its instinct of class self-preservation sensitive in the extreme. The greater the danger, all the more does the class, like the individual, exert its vital forces in the struggle for self-preservation. Not forget also that the bourgeoisie finds itself face-to-face with mortal danger after having accumulated colossal political experience. Now, that's an actually, that's a very important concept, because in the class struggle, and, and if you don't think, and I'm not referring to you, Brooke, because <laughs> if one doesn't think that the bourgeoisie doesn't have people who are very consciously thinking of how are we going to trap left opposition to capitalism. You're mistaken. Um, I mean, they – imagine the, how the ruling class saw the fact that Bernie Sanders, this backbencher you know, who's a known quantity, who's been in the Democratic caucus of Congress for 30 years. But all of a sudden this guy who nobody had he- really heard of in the population outside of Vermont – um, suddenly is winning primaries left and right against the anointed Hillary Clinton, and that really concerned them, not so much because of Sanders himself represented a threat, but because the fact that so many Americans were not afraid of what, of what they understood as socialism um, was a sign that this country, and all over the world it's the same, the working class is moving to the left, and it's abandoning. It's anti-commun the anti-communism that may have held sway in the middle of the 20th century, the uh, period of American exceptionalism, etc. But just to make this uh, to bring this point back, the reason why the Socialist Equality Party focuses and the World Socialist website on these historical lessons is because the bourgeoisie has its experiences, which it consciously brings to bear in bringing people like Ocasio Cortez forward. But the working class also has experiences. It's experience of the Russian Revolution, of why the Russian Revolution was betrayed by the bureaucracy headed by Joseph Stalin, why the Spanish Civil War ended in disaster, why World War II was allowed to take place, how Hitler came to power without a single shot being fired by the social democratic and communist parties of Germany, which had millions and millions of members between them. And there is no shortcut. We're, we're talking about uh, uh, social trans, uh, we're talking about social revol- socialist revolution, which will end the period of human history in which humanity had no say in the organization of society and the, the distribution of its resources and open a period in which those processes are consciously directed democratically by the broad masses of the population, not for private profit, but to meet human need. And there is no shortcut. You have to study the historical lessons of the class struggle, and that's why you need a party. We believe that party is the Socialist Equality Party, um, and we would we would encourage everybody out there really being active. It's critical. Our movement is very active in the struggle of the working class. We're building committees to oppose the union betrayals of every workers' struggle taking place across the world, but. Alongside action, or at least to enrich it or to to make action have any progressive content, you do have to really have thought to internalize all of the historical lessons of the past, and that's what we see as as our role.
0: And I want to remind everybody that if you check out WSWS.org, there are – videos there's podcasts there's the marxist library there are essays on on history you can find all of this information there and it's all been redesigned and it's beautiful i mean it's just the the information design of this website is just gorgeous i mean just aside from all of the amazing information all in one place it's just it it's so easy to to get around and navigate and 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 use Uh, you guys, I want to thank you so much for, for, for your time. And, and and I feel like um, I feel like I've learned something. And, and I'm also inspired by what you said uh, about, you know, what needs to be done and what is possible. And I don't often feel that uh, kind of um, uh, optimism after these kinds of interviews so thank you so much uh joseph joseph kishore and eric london thank you thank you thank you thank you all right
1: thank
0: you all right and we're out um cool that was awesome that was a great that was a great note to to land on and uh I noticed at some point we lost one of the calls, but I, as soon as I saw it, I'd, um, I'd punched you back in. I'm sorry. I think that that was probably Joe. Um, okay. Well, um, I'll tell you what, yes, I will thank
2: you very much for having us.
0: Yeah, I will uh as soon as I get this all put together, since we've got this recorded before Sunday, that gives me the opportunity to create a um a, a promo for it and I'll share that with you as soon as I have that and uh, um, uh for for Sunday for promotion.
1: Okay. By the way, Brick, just the, the uh interview that uh Eric quoted from uh in nineteen eighty four. Uh, where uh, it's in the New York Times, You can find it. Uh, it's with Irving Howe. Uh, he says this about the proletariat not being. No one, no one believes that anymore. He also has a very revealing line where he says that. he says okay, I just just it quote because it's, I think it's related to a lot of the issues that you're raising. He says uh, he talks about the shift from the New Left, the period of the 60s, and he says there's an illustration of this shift an illustration of this shift is that when i criticize american foreign policy i do that in the name of the national security of the united states and then howe says and this is not just a rhetorical strategy it's a genuine position because if you think back to someone in the 1960s at a vietnam anti-vietnam war rally getting up and talking about the national security of the united states well it would not have been, it would have been difficult right and he says uh, that's a good I mean, you know, the whole sort of framework is within the the interests of, of American imperialism. I mean, it's you know, it's, it's, the, it's really revealing. Actually, the more even as we we're discussing, you know, sort of the, the
0: I, I the or, same way. You know,
1: you get to you get, what was it, what is the real nature of the DSA, and uh, it's uh, it's opposed to politics of the working class. It's pro-imperialist. The faction of the Democratic Party. You know, people need to really know this. So I, I think it's very valuable. I'm glad that you had a time to, to begin to talk about some of these issues.
0: Yeah, it just barely cracked the nut here. And that's Irving Howe, New York Times, 1984.
1: Yes, called Ir- Voices from the Left.
0: Voices from the Left. If you have a
1: Times subscription, you can do that. But, you know, it's just striking. It's sort of it's the same theme over and over again. And Harrington's role, because there's this myth, which is, you know, that somehow Harrington split with Shackman because Harrington was opposed to the Vietnam War. I mean, it's really ridiculous. He came out in opposition to the war as late as it was possible. He came out after Kennedy, uh, after it was like three years after Martin Luther King declared that the greatest purveyor of violence is the United States government. You know, it was as late as possible. He was covering for Shackman's pro-war position. Uh, It's really sort of it's really foul, and this was the the origins of the of the DSA.
0: Well, and I they think it with the Democratic primary, seventy-two. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and those same same moves are being uh, repeated over and over again. There, uh, there was this. Um, I went to <laughs> this. This is the the next thing I'm writing about. I went to this. Uh, uh, it was a conference in Death Valley, uh, like literally in the desert in Death Valley put on by the daily Co by the, the luminaries of daily Co's. So these are like the owners and the, and, and the, the, the big money people at daily Co's. And I was asked to go there. So like, I, I'm never getting invited to anything ever again. Like, you know, that has to do with democratic politics. Cause I did it for a year or two and I, I saw all this stuff and I was like, Holy shit, you guys are just corrupt as hell. But anyway, I went to this thing in 2017 in March and the, the it, it it was uh they were having a conference out in the desert to teach people about how to protect themselves from the Russians <laughs> who were using all of our electronic equipment to to spy on us it was It was this big
2: st- our bottle sounds like our ruining our purity of essence exactly of fluids.
0: exactly it was it was so but at one point it and these, these people are so brainwashed at one point uh it was like the second night and everyone was drinking and there was a bonfire. They pulled out an American flag and I shit you not started singing the national anthem because they were they they were full of this like uh, uh emotion of being to the right of Donald Trump. Like that was filling them with this with this like patriotic uh just just frenzy and I was like, oh my God. Yeah, you know, like, I was so glad to witness it. You know, to be able to say, yeah, that happened, <laughs> and I saw it. But uh, but at the same time, I was just like, wow, wow, you know. <laughs> and, and they were doing it, they, yeah, it, 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 cynically as a as a as a pose, you know, like we are going to be to the right uh, and more and more correct than Donald Trump. It was awful. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but you know, it's uh you know, now it's gonna be uh you know, there'll be women throwing, dropping the bombs and you know, oh yeah directing the CI. Right. Yeah, right. It'll be it'll be close of identity. That's the specialty of the Democratic Party. It's always worth men- you know, recalling that most of the wars of American imperialism have been uh have been initiated and, and directed by the Democratic Party. I and, and it's certainly
0: when when I was in college and 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 someone dropped that truth bomb on me, I was I was it it kinda shook my world. <laughs> I was like, No. Really? Yeah. <laughs> sure did. Harrington was in
1: Harrington was in the administration of Johnson while the the, the yeah. Vietnam War was being escalated. He was in it. He was an advisor. He was on the he was in the government. Wow. Anyway. Oh my <laughs> god. Very angry
0: about anyway. Well, thank you guys so much. I don't want to keep you too much longer. Um, And I'm going to go find this uh, Voices from the Left article because this this sounds right up my alley. Isserman's
1: book is worth reading, too. He's actually a supporter of Harrington. It's called The Other American. Uh, There's also a book called Max Schackman and his Left, which is somewhat difficult to find, but it uh, goes over the evolution of Schackman. I
0: think I have Uh, The The Other Other America.
2: You, you might be interested the other than
1: what uh, was what Harrington wrote. His biography is called "The Other American" by Okay. Sussman,
0: okay. Which has a, yeah. You might Sorry, also Eric. be
2: interested in that. No, I was just saying Tom Kahn is another figure you have probably come across, Brooke.
0: C O N.
2: He was and He comes out of the he comes out of the Ipsos, too, and the Shachmanite movement. OK. And he um, he's a bit younger than Harrington, but he ends up being the uh, the international executive director of the AFL-CIO. Oh,
1: and actually,
2: he at the at the end of his life, he actually he was gay and he died of AIDS in the in the early 90s, tragically. But but he um, he ended up actually debating neocons in the 80s and and took a position which was so anti-communist that the neoconservatives believed that he was sort of crazy and that he was going to start a third world war.
0: <laughs> oh my
2: God. Um, <laughs> Tom con. Yeah, so look, look him up. There's an article about him by Ray, Rochelle Horowitz, who's another old SDS hand and another old Um Yeah,
1: and no, either way, of course, the Shackmanites, you know, th- those who were close to Shackman, Shackman died uh, before they sort of really developed, but they became neocons. They were around Scoop Jackson, who was the most, most pro-war Democrat. Uh, in the Senate, uh, and then a lot of them shifted into the Republican Party and became the sort of neocons, which is where you get the myth that the neocons came out of the Trotskyist movement. They, 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 you know, this was long after Shackman had split, but they became – and what's actually sort of – it now you have the sort of the, the coming back together in a certain way of the Democratic Party, uh, the DSA-type people uh, who went with Harrington. Back with the neocons, who have a significant section of them have shifted behind the Democrats, at least in uh, relationship to foreign policy, because of the uh, you know disaffection with Trump's policy on Russia. Um, <laughs> some ways, you know, there's, there's, they're back together again in the big tent of the Democratic Party. Uh, you yeah, know, it's uh, anyway, it's a, it's an interesting political.
0: So Is it yeah, this is this is very, very fertile ground. And and I I think you're right. I think someone said earlier that, that this is just this is just the beginning of a conversation. Um you know, this is just cracking it open, really. All right, you guys, check out both Eric London and Joe uh, Kishore on WSWS.org you can follow them on Twitter which is a great place to uh, get a heads up on their new material as it's being published and uh, we'll be right back. Uh Let's welcome Janine Mollis with the Justice Report. This week Janine is following up on Jim Crow 2.0 and looking at the corporate connections to voter suppression. Hey Janine.
3: Hey Brooke. Well this is something that really should be emphasized in the mainstream corporate news but it's either been glossed over or just totally disregarded. So basically I'm just going to move right into it. You know, Jim Crow's been with us for well over 100 years. Combined with the blanket racism that, if you picture racism like a blanket that tucks in, not only southern wealth but midwestern wealth as well, Jim Crow remains a massive presence. Now, a few weeks ago, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed a new voting, I'll call it a voting procedures bill, that really amounts to just more voter suppression dressed up in what some people would call the Sunday best of the GOP, and the hypocrisy doesn't escape us. I call it Jim Crow 2.0. Now, to add further insult to injury, these white supremacists, they they couldn't have pulled off such a massive bill in Georgia or otherwise without corporate assistance. That's just a fact. And this assistance is often called, is often quaintly uh, named, campaign contributions, but we all know a Trojan horse when we see one. We know Trojans, period, whether it's the Trojan horse or the prophylactic of choice like Brian Kemp. Couldn't resist. So, recently, large corporate interests in Atlanta, such as Delta and Coca-Cola, have pretended, as examples, they pretended to care about the voting rights injustices perpetuated using Jim Crow tactics by basically publicly denouncing the new law in Georgia. So the question is this. Is this act of public contrition genuine, or is it just another example of moral whitewashing? The question is relevant. When we begin to examine the history of corporate contributions, as it were, to politicians, we don't find any actual epiphany, Rather, we find the psychological or, or perhaps call, actually the sociological profile of a sociopath hedging political bets and nothing more it's doing so quite cynically these same corporations and there's a whole slew of them not just Coke and Delta now denouncing the Georgia law and white supremacy in general continue to give this continue to give to the same GOP and the same corporate-owned politicians such as Brian Kemp who pushed voter suppression, which by the way, often benefits the corporate bottom line. Let's look at the evidence. So Monday, April 5th, 2021, in Common Dreams, Jake Johnson did an article titled Follow the Money, Corporations Gave 50 million to GOP Lawmakers Behind Voter Suppression Onslaught. And this was They're talking about a major study that was done by the advocacy group Public Citizen. So, you know, to quote the Johnson article, quote, no matter how many PR statements big business puts out, its complicity with the anti-democratic forces that want to make voting harder is clear. So Jake Johnson gets straight into it. He's talking about that same report from Public Citizen, and that report is titled, quote, the Corporate Sponsors of Voter Suppression, and that title's very apt. And there's even on the, on the cover of the report, there's a Photoshop version of Georgia's Republican Governor Brian Ken signing that latest voter suppression bill into law, and instead of the painting in the background being of that infamous slave plantation, that same painting in the background is overlaid with logos of major corporate donors that have given to Kemp and the GOP in recent years. So I'm getting straight into how Johnson describes the public And Most of this is going to be about the public citizen report. So public citizen documents that since 2015, many big businesses, none the least of which is AT&T, Comcast, United Health Group, Walmart, and several others have basically given a, uh, uh, Total combined total fifty million to state level GOP lawmakers, who basically are supporting voter suppression bills and helping to write them across the United States. So it's not just Georgia, and that generous spending because these politicians come cheap. Okay, that's what people don't understand. All right, these politicians will sell out very quickly and cheaply. That's the that just adds insult to injury, but. So this generous political spending clashes with the PR effort, the public relations effort by big corporates to try and quote, rebrand themselves as defenders of voting rights. Yeah, right. So this report was released Monday this past week. And again, it was authored by consumer advocacy group Public Citizen. And they analyzed several things. They found that during the 2020 election cycle alone, the U.S. corporations donated about $22 million to, quote, what they call, quote, GOP architects of voter suppression bills that are advancing through state legislatures nationwide, end quote. Okay? Public Citizens report uh, goes on. In fact, Rick Claypool who is one of the authors of the report, was quoted as saying, quote, corporations should keep their money out of our democracy, and Congress must put the people back in charge by swiftly passing the For the People Act, end quote. And that's really, that's another issue we'll talk about another date. So public Citizen found among quite a bit of data. Um, First of all, they cited data from the National Institute on Money and Politics. And from that source, Public Citizen found that AT&T has given the most since 2015, some $811,000. Again, these are all to Republican politicians that specifically push or support voter suppression laws at the state level. AT&T was followed up by Altria, Philip Morris, Comcast, UnitedHealth Group, Walmart, State Farm, and Pfizer. Now, those household names, that's the top 25, but there's more. It includes Nationwide, Merck, CVS Pharmacy, John Deere, and Caterpillar. So Public Citizen tweeted, quote, this is why you follow the money, not the good PR. I'm going to repeat that because it tells it all. Public Citizen tweeted, quote, this is why you follow the money, not the good PR public relations. So very true. All right, don't take anybody's word for anything. Follow the money. It tells the story. So the report findings that were released, um, they were, basically the report was released after these big corporate talking heads pretended. They they cast themselves as champions against voter suppression bills like the Georgia law. So you see a lot of prominent corporations like AT&T, Comcast again, and especially in Georgia, Georgia-based companies like Coca-Cola and Delta, and they all sent out statements that denounced the bill that Governor Kemp signed last month. Okay, and that looked very lovely, except I right, of advocate demands that they denounced this voter suppression bill. The companies were, for the most part, quiet as that measure went through Georgia's uh, GOP majority legislature, okay? So they basically let other people in the GOP do their dirty work for them while they pretended to be the good guys. The public, the public citizen report revealed the following. Between 2015 and 2020, corporations donated more than $10.8 million to Georgia Republicans specifically and more specifically, Georgia Republicans that supported some 26 voter suppression bills that were introduced into the Georgia State Legislature in that one year. Corporations also donated quite a bit to voter suppression advocates in the following states, Texas, Arizona, Virginia, Iowa, Pennsylvania, and Arkansas. And Rick Claypool, once again, who is the research director, for public citizens' president's office, but also one of this report's authors, gave a quote to Common Dream. This is where this article comes from. Quote, from coast to coast, politicians that corporate America helped elect are pushing racist voter suppression laws. No matter how many PR statements big business puts out, its complicity with the anti-democratic forces that want to make voting harder is clear. Corporations should keep their money out of our democracy, and Congress must put the people back back in charge by swiftly passing the For the People Act, end quote. And Claypool's right. Now, next, the Brennan Center for Justice that's affiliated with NYU weighs in as well. So according to a tally by the Brennan Center, legislatures in the United States overall introduced 361 bills that had voter restricting provisions. Now it was 361 bills with voter restrictions in 47 states just this year alone. That should send a chilling message. Five of those 361 have actually become law. Now, one of the excuses that corporates using is the January 6th Capitol insurrection. It did have a chilling effect on corporate largesse, but only a temporary one. All right? So large corporations got kind of queasy when they saw it was going on with January 6th. Um, apparently, you know, I would say that big corporate money and Wall Street, they like their voter suppression and their white supremacy kind of done more discreetly, okay? Like you don't crap or you eat. But they use this as an example, as an excuse, so they kind of temporarily suspended, some of them, any political giving. Okay. Um, And that was according to an article in Common Dreams titled If Wall Street Really Believed Defending Our Democracy Says, you know, basically they would end their their contributions. Um, They did face backlash. Republican members of Congress who allegedly helped provoke the attack, um, with lies about the, tw- the the election results for the POTUS, they got queasy, so they backed off. Okay, well, Public Citizen called them out. And Public Citizen said that such corporate public relations whitewashing, um, this corporate hand-wringing, if you will, oh, my, it was so bad, nearly a dog-and-pony show. These corporate continue to bankroll the politicians supporting or backing these voter suppression bills Around the nation okay so what public citizen called it out is basically that this disavowal of voter suppression measures is quote will amount to a meaningless gesture if corporations continue to bankroll the bill supporters uh, the bill supporters with f- with future campaign contributions um, to go on to with what public citizen said quote. The days in which corporate America can fund politicians and then claim no responsibility for their actions may be coming to an end. Corporations seeking to demonstrate their reverence for our democracy could best do so by ending their attempts to influence the outcome of elections at the federal and state levels, end quote. To which I can only say, yup. I know it's a little cynical, but anyway, moving on. Brennan Center for Justice. This is a piece and it was written by Ciara Torres who who is a Brennan Center Fellow and an associate professor of law at the Stetson University College of Law. She's also authored a few books, Safeguarding Markets from Pernicious Play to Pay to Play, a model explaining why the SEC regulates money in politics. So it's one book, I incorrect corrected. Um, so Georgia-based companies, they they saw the backlash after January 6th. And, but they're also getting additional backlash, according to Sierra Torres-Bellici, um, from voting advocates for their silence on all this regressive voter legislation, okay? And there's a picture here of demonstrators that able to a sit-in at the Georgia State Capitol, and there's, you know, signs, stop voter suppression, voter suppression is on American, and they're wearing masks, but one of the people... Who, front and center in this photo to me looks like Park Cannon, which kind of makes her arrest look more political every day. So they're talking about how Kemp signed this regressive, what they call omnibus bill, because it really was. According to the Brendan Center, it is an omnibus voting rights bill. It, it, basically, a lot of white people do not understand why this is so difficult. All right? They do not understand. It's not this bill makes voting exactly illegal, but it puts up obstacles, obstacles that make it much more difficult to vote. And then it adds other provisions as well. So, you know, we know about the part of the bill in Georgia where it makes it a crime to give food or water to anyone waiting in line to vote. And the excuse by the GOP was, well, we don't want people bribing voters with, you know, pizza parties. Seriously, that's all you got? I mean, Come on now. That 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 excuse is in the dog eat my homework category. But anyway, so that's their excuse. But the fact is, if you ever go to a voting, um, uh, you know, a, a, vote, a polling place, especially in a low-income neighborhood or um, community of color neighborhood, you will see lines often that go on for hours. You go into white suburbia, you're in and out in 15 minutes. Don't tell me there's not something fishy going on. So there were voting rights activists, for instance, members of what's called the New Georgia Project, among other groups. The New Georgia Project was was, uh, covered in Newsweek. An article called Activist Slam, Coke, Delta, and General Motors, Low-Key Betrayal of the Georgia Election Law. And the New Georgia Project, among other groups, called out corporations that made political contributions to GOP lawmakers. Um, to quote them, would say, "Coca-Cola." Oh, this actually, this is this is my thing. Coca-Cola, you know, who says things go better with Coke, was probably talking about massive voter suppression. Coca-Cola made political contributions to the politicians who wrote, passed, and signed this bill into law. Okay. So that's why they're on everybody's crap list. Um, Follow the money. Okay, there's a group aptly titled. Their name of the group is Follow the Money. money FollowtheMoney.org. And they saw the Coca-Cola gate to Brian Kemp's gubernatorial campaign. Other Kemp donors, and Kemp is a big pusher of that law, big major voter suppression uh, warrior, if you will, other corporate donors that gave to Kemp, SunTrust Bank, Philip Morris, Coke Industries, no shock there, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Georgia, Home Depot, Delta Airlines, and Pfizer. Now, the Georgia state rep who authored that same law, Barry Fleming, he also received corporate donations from some companies, including United Health Group, Coca-Cola, again, Philip Morris USA, Comcast, Walmart, Allstate Insurance, AT&T, Publix. SunTrust Bank, Georgia Pacific, General Motors, and Coke Industries. This corporate largesse, this corporate money, wasn't an accident. It was a strategic attack on democracy itself and the right to vote. There's no guesswork here. All right, and it's from the GOP. Now there was some uh, there was some criticism from 72 current and former Black executives from several companies that condemned the Georgia law. These Black executives include Kenneth Chenault, who was a former CEO of American Express, Kenneth Frazier, the chief executive of Merck, Roger Ferguson, Jr., the chief executive of TIAA, Raymond McGuire, a former executive at Citigroup, Ursula Burns, a former chief executive at Xerox, Richard Parsons, a former chairman of Citigroup. Um, And Delta's CEO at Bastion wrote a memo to employees which is another Georgia-based company, stating the following, kind of lukewarm, quote, after having time to now fully understand all that is in the bill, coupled with discussions with leaders and employees in the black community, it is evident that the bill includes provisions that will make it harder for many underrepresented voters, particularly black voters, to exercise their constitutional right to elect their representatives. That is wrong, end quote. James Quincy, the CEO of Coca-Cola, was quoted saying, quote, this legislation is wrong, It needs to be remedied, and we will continue to advocate for it, both in private and now even more clearly in public, end quote. All right. The reason I mention all these names is because for too often, executives have been able to hide with relative anonymity. We're not going to allow them to do that any longer. Now, why are these corporate honchos all of a sudden saying, oh, no, we didn't mean that? Well, there were threats of boycott, And for those who say boycotts don't work, nonsense. Of course, boycotts work. You boycotts hurt the very people doing the boycotting who work for those companies, sure. But the fact is, if you're fighting this kind of battle, you have to be ready to make some sacrifices for the greater good. Just is. Look at the Montgomery bus boycotts in the mid-50s, okay? Um, people also forget that the large, the last speech Dr. King ever gave the mountaintop speech, called for boycotts of companies that had horrible civil rights records. In fact, Dr. King called for boycotts of multiple companies, back then Wonder Bread, and most notably, Coca-Cola. Keep in mind, Coca-Cola corporations, their Coca-Cola clubs and all that, they love to have this squeaky clean Americana, you know, family values type of Uh, you know, a reputation, unfortunately, their actions don't quite match that. So, in fact, Dr. King, when he said to boycott Coca-Cola, there's a quote from Dr. King, our agenda calls for withdrawing economic support for you. Go out and tell your neighbors not to buy Coca-Cola, end quote. And according to this article, they noted that the next day, Dr. King was assassinated. King's daughter, Bernice King, called out corporate silence, <clears throat> you know, in light of Jim Crow and police brutality. His daughter, Bernice A. King, she's demanding Georgia corporations uphold the pledges they made in 2020. Um, as a response to the police murder of George Floyd. Um, there's an open letter that was jointly penned by King, Bernice King, Al Vivian, and John Miles Lewis, And this was their comment in the run-up to the omnibus bill, in other words, the voting suppression bill in Georgia, right before its passage. And here's the quote. Quote, Corporations did not go far enough to ensure every voting citizen had fair and equitable access to the most basic of American rights, the right to participate in the electoral process, the right to have a voice in our shared future. The failure of corporate leaders across the state to live up to their racial equity commitments made in the last year disregards and disrespects our father's tireless work and jeopardizes the soul of Georgia and the promise of of democracy. When the first test came challenging our corporations to move from words to action to stand on behalf of disenfranchised voters, there was shocking silence. The lack of action is not only ethically wrong and morally reprehensible, it hurts the corporate bottom line. Racism is bad for business, end quote. So there have been three lawsuits to the Georgia law. We're going to see how forcefully um, Georgia corporations will either aid or oppose this litigation, including litigation that was spearheaded by Stacey Abrams and her group. Um, you know, again, we have to be willing to sacrifice. No battle can be won without a willingness and a courage to sacrifice. And at the end of the letter, the King letter, that his his children wrote, uh, the writers expressed corporations should, quote, use your power to retire, propagandized politics in the state legislatures and promote the passage of HR1 for the People Act. And the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act currently before the Congress, end quote. And I quite agree with, um, you know, this writer, with uh, Cecilia, I'm sorry, Ciara torres Belici. but there's more. This is really, oh, it's more damning. So I have a uh, basically a, a summary of public citizens' report titled The Corporate Sponsors of Voter Suppression. The full report was written by Mike Tanglis, Taylor Lincoln, and Rick Claypool. Key findings. Okay, I'm just going to read straight from it. Quote, corporations have contributed $50 million since 2015 to state state legislators, supporting voter suppression bills, including $22 million during the 2020 election cycle. Okay, and I'm going to stop here for a second because It's significant that they're backing state legislatures, all right? When they do that, when corporations go more to that local and that state level, they avoid some of the more negative publicity that would come from basically a national campaign. So they're doing what I call the termite offensive. To go on with key findings, quote, AT&T is given the most, $811,000. AT&T is followed by Altria, Philip so Morris, Comcast, United Health Group, Walmart, State Farm, and Pfizer. More than 60 corporations have contributed more than 100000 among, Quote, among the Fortune, Fortune 100, 81 companies have contributed to these lawmakers, which is a combined total of $7.7 million. Quote, among the Fortune 500, 45% of companies have contributed to these lawmakers, giving a combined total of $12.8 million, 8 million Quote, three-quarters of the companies that alter their campaign finance policies in response to the January 6th insurrection have given to the voters, I'm sorry, have given to the supporters of voter suppression bills. So they denounce with one hand and give money with the other. This is basically the political equivalent of when your neighbor hates you, they smile to your face and stab you in the back. Next key point, quote, industry trade groups, contributed 36 million to state legislators supporting voter suppression bills, including 16 million during the 2020 election cycle. Okay, so this report, we just talked about the major findings. What we're really summing up here is the idea that corporate America, while they gave verbal disapproval of the violence we saw on January 6th and disapproval to members of Congress that supported Trump's attempt to overturn, the results of the 2020 election. At the same time, they gave to state-level GOP members who supported voter suppression uh, acts. And it was also stated, um, according to CNN, a minimum of 123 corporations as well as corporate trade associations temporarily changed their political giving after January 6th. Um, they suspended giving to about 147 members of Congress. The very members have voted to block the certification of the POTUS election. Um, but that's just a temporary suspension. All right. We need to really watch what these people are doing. Um, and also corporations, even though they wanted to distance themselves from Trump's, uh, kind of awkward banter, they still had no problems with overturning elections. All right? So, you know, if, look at it this way, if corporate America were so against voter suppression bills, why then do they continue to throw money at politicians who backed those same voter suppression and Jim Crow type bills? It is a perfectly legitimate question. And you have to remember, Jim Crow is just a key term for legalized discrimination as it applies to so many things. And today the voting restrictions and what we're calling voter suppression nowadays to borrow from this report are quote, cloaked in rhetoric of deterring voter fraud, end quote. And that's their excuse. But that's, what they're really trying to do is erect as many obstacles to lawful voting for communities of color and progressives and anyone else they don't happen to agree with. That's really all it is. And these corporate entities are taking advantage. They're using the bigotry, the innate bigotry. They're using white supremacy to basically help support their corporate bottom line. Um, So, you know, in Georgia, we know that, for instance, It is now a crime for volunteers to give food or water to voters that stand for hours. You know, keep in mind, you might be standing in a January election for hours on end, seriously. Uh, And this often happens in communities of color. But there is more in the Georgia law that I'm afraid is going to be carried into voter suppression laws all over the country. And one of those proposals in the Georgia law goes way beyond just suppressing the vote. One of those provisions gives the state legislature in Georgia permission to throw out the vote altogether. Yeah, yeah, seriously. Um, There's a bill in Arizona, no shock there, that loves voter suppression, that would also allow the state legislature to, quote, overrule the will of the voters in a presidential election. Okay, so they don't like it. The GOP can just throw it out. It doesn't matter that it's a legal vote. And it's happening all over the country. Here in my native state of Missouri, we had a statewide vote that amended the Missouri Constitution to mandatorily expand Medicaid Medicaid provisions, and it won with 53% in an incredibly red state, okay? Missouri's so red that if it were a state, you could still hear the move of the cow, okay? And yet it still won. So what are the Republicans doing in the state legislature? They're just disregarding that this is going to be part of the new Constitution, and they're refusing. One state legislature said, well, in rural Missouri, people said no, so I don't care what the other people say. I'm not kidding. So this report looks at corporations and trade associations. The trade association would be like, you know, the American Bar Association, banking associations, whatever. Okay? So public citizen, let's talk about the methodology for the report. Because this wasn't just them cherry-picking facts. Public citizen looked at three, they analyzed three main data sets. Voter suppression bills is One. Voter suppression bill supporters is two, and state-level corporate contribution data is three. And they used data from the Voting Rights Lab as recent as this past March 1st, okay, just a month ago. The list of voter suppression bills includes 245 bills in total this year. They gathered the names of lawmakers supporting the bills. They took the names of the bill authors and co-sponsors, again, the information was obtained from the voting rights lab, uh, where there were cases that bills had been voted on, public citizens supplemented that data by adding state legislators who voted in favor of that legislation as well. So totally more than, in total, more than 800 elected officials have either, quote, authored, co-sponsored, or voted for those bills, uh, end quote, as of March 9, 2021. Contributions made to the voter suppression bill supporters, public citizen use data um, provided by the National Institute on Money and Politics, and that was from the -the followthemoney.org site. Contributions that were highlighted in the report include contributions made by company PACs, political action committees, and contributions that came directly from corporate coffers. Corporations have given the support of the voter suppression bills, 50 million since 2015. We've gone over this. There's a whole list of, of corporations that have given. AT&T, Altrio Philip Morris, Comcast, NBC Universal, United Health Group, Walmart, State Farm, Pfizer, DNSF wa- Railway Company, Farmers Insurance, Coke Industries, Dominion Energy, my hometown company, Anheuser-Busch Company, which is actually now owned by InBev. Horizon, Union Pacific, Enterprise Holdings, again, based in St. Louis, RAI Services, Reynolds American, American Electric Power, McGuire Woods Consulting, Exelon Corporation, Marathon Petroleum, Centene here in St. Louis again, HCA Management Services, Charter Communications, DBH Management Consultants, and General Motors. Okay, we go on. So it goes on Caterpillar Pfizer Merck it goes on and on, Coca-Cola USAA and what we find not only there were not only were there six companies on the, from the Fortune 500 list that gave money but also the top Fortune 100 okay. um, the study noted that yes 123 companies did pause in other words they stopped their federal contributions to the GOP immediately after the January 6th insurrection, but three quarters of the 123 companies have contributed to the voter suppression bill supporters. Okay, so, you know, what's the point? All right, they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. Voter suppression bills have been introduced in at least 16 state legislatures. Voter Suppression Bills, they're being written and proposed all over the United States, but there are some states that are pushing them more than others. Public Citizen analyzed 245 Voter Suppression Bills in 39 states, and that information was gathered by the Voting Rights Lab. Nine state legislators had 10 or more Voter Suppression Bills as of March 1. Four states have more than 15 Voter Suppression Bills that are they're considering. excuse me, and those four states are, unsurprisingly, Georgia, Arizona, New Jersey, and Texas, okay? Um, States in which five or more voter suppression bills have been introduced, and that includes contributions between 2015 to 2020. Here's a list of states, Georgia, Arizona, New Jersey, Texas, Illinois, New York, Minnesota, Tennessee, Missouri, Maryland, Virginia, North Dakota, South Carolina, Mississippi, Pennsylvania, and Oklahoma. Okay? So this is widespread. Now, they give you an example, Arkansas only has one bill, one voter suppression bill. Okay, so that doesn't sound as bad, right? But... That bill in Arkansas, according to Legiscan.com, has already been voted on by the State House and the State Senate in Arkansas, and practically 100 lawmakers were on the record as supporting it. Corporate America supported the Arkansas voter suppression bill, Um, they've given $2.5 million in campaign contributions over the last three election cycles, so on and so forth. you know, once again, we're going to look at this Iowa, okay? Iowa's state legislation, state legislatures um, that supported voter suppression bills, they've gathered some $2.9 million from corporate in America. Um, and once again, states where corporate America has contributed $1.5 million or more, To state-level politicians that support voter suppression bills, Georgia, Virginia, Texas, Iowa, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Arkansas, New York, Florida, Illinois, Nevada, and Arizona. Some states, the top contributors are also local companies. In Texas and New Jersey, and this is really ironic given what Texas has been through with their deregulation and the massive power blackout, utility companies are among the biggest contributors. So the deregulated fossil fuel industry in Texas actually needs voter suppression. Encore in Texas contributed over uh, no contributed almost eighty seven thousand dollars to supporters of voter suppression bills in Texas. It's the fourth biggest contributor, okay And but these local companies are outliers. The top contributors are national and international corporations, like AT and T and the others that I've mentioned. Um, so then you also have trade groups, okay? And they come from PACs. Um, trade groups have given some $36 million to sponsors of voter suppression legislation. Total 26 trade groups contributed 200 grand or more for that. And here are some of the trade groups. Texans for lawsuit reform. Associated General Contractors of Iowa. Iowa Association of Realtors. Iowa Bankers Association, Iowa Farm Bureau, Arkansas Healthcare Association, Master Builders of Iowa. What's going on in Iowa for Christ's sake? Virginia Beer Wholesalers Association, Iowa Healthcare Association, Iowa Center for Assisted Living, Georgia Trial Lawyers Association. This shows tri- trial lawyers don't can't say they don't have a good sense of humor. Georgia Association of Realtors, Georgia Medical Association, Texas Association of Realtors. Wow. Wine and Spirits Wholesalers of Georgia, and it goes on and on and on. Big Pharma, Pharma Research and Manufacturers Association of America, Georgia Bankers Association, Virginia Bankers Association, even the Virginia Dental Association, good God. So in Arizona, Georgia, Iowa, and Texas, they produced some of the worst of the worst when it comes to voter suppression bills. Okay. We're going to synopsize them right now. Arizona. Keep in mind, Joe Biden, won Arizona, two dozen bills. In other words, 24 bills have been introduced by Republican legislators in the Arizona legisl- legis- uh, legislature, okay? Furthermore, Arizona's attorney general defended the state's already existing voter-restricting laws, and he really he did that before the U.S. Supreme Court, okay? And that was according... Where it's reported by ArizonaCentral.com. Um, that was in early March, and that was a challenge brought, ironically, by the Arizona Secretary of State, who basically said the laws violate the Voting Rights Act, which they did. Um, so what kind of laws are they doing, trying to try pass in Arizona? Well, one of them prohibits anybody but a family member, household member, or caregiver from turning in another person's ballot. Okay, maybe they just don't drive, whatever. This is, again, making it harder for lower-income voters to vote. Lower courts struck down the law um, and basically said, in part, that this particular provision would have, quote, a disproportionate negative effect on Black, Hispanic, and Indigenous voters. Okay. Um, There's some other pending bills, as reported by CNN, they would push restrictions on early and mail-in voting, no shock there. They would also purge voters from official rolls after you, that is, if you don't vote in two consecutive elections, okay? And we had Greg Palast on the show, you know, earlier in the year talking about that because that what that is is voter caging. You also have a proposal that would, that really alarms voting rights advocates. This is really bad in Arizona. Again, it would allow the Arizona state legislature to, quote, overturn presidential election results even after they're certified. And that was as reported by Tucson.com. The Arizona State Director of All Voting is local, uh, basically told the LA Times, quote, they all add up to changing our election system in substantial ways to basically respond to the big lie, end quote. And that big lie is Trump's claims, that the only reason he lost was that there was all this voter fraud, which there wasn't, okay? Republican Arizona Representative John Kavanaugh is one of the co-sponsors of multiple bills in Arizona, and he was really clear that he wanted to reduce the number of people that would vote, as reported by CNN, to quote Representative Kavanaugh, quote, Republicans are more concerned about fraud so we don't mind putting security measures in that won't let everybody vote, but everybody shouldn't be voting. Not everybody wants to vote, and if somebody is uninterested in voting, that probably means that they're totally uninformed on the issues. Quantity is important, but we have to look at the quality of votes as well. End quote. What a pile of garbage. Let's move on. Georgia, key battleground state during the POTUS campaign, and afterwards, do you remember Trump pressured um, Georgia officials, including the Secretary of State, to investigate this election fraud. There was no election fraud. Um, but Brian Kemp, who, is, who was elected, he's ele- a Republican governor there, as well as the GOP-controlled legislature, they kind of pivoted around where they were talking about security measures, quote, designed to restore confidence in the state's elections, end quote. Again, as reported by CNN. So what about that? Well, the Brennan Center for Justice, along with some others, uh, the Brennan Center for Justice as well as the Voting Rights Lab, they identified and flagged Georgia legislation as voter suppression. Um, Bills that would put new limits on absentee and early voting passed the Georgia House. There was a bill to eliminate no-excuse absentee voting passed the Georgia Senate, which we actually have here in Missouri. Again, this is all to make it more difficult for certain groups of voters to actually use their right to vote. Stacey Abrams, who founded the voting rights organization Fair Fight, was quoted as saying, quote, instead of winning new voters, you rig the system against their participation and you steal the right to vote, end quote. So there was also a report by Popular Information, and they found that... GOP members that back these voter suppression efforts have yes been supported by millions in corporate political spending. Again, Coca-Cola is in that group. Um, several Georgia-based corporations um, were involved in, in backing voter suppression. Uh, again, Coca-Cola, AFLAC, Delta Air, Home Depot, UPS, the Georgia Chamber of Commerce. All these corporations, you know, the ironic part, they they basically express opposition to voter suppression bills, okay, while they continued to support GOP politicians that authored and supported the very voter suppression bills that these corporate entities were saying, oh, no, we don't like this. This is wrong. So it looks like, you know, in my opinion, corporations like Coca-Cola prefer their Jim Crow with a false side of with a side order of false civility. Iowa, one of the quickest states to push new legislation to enact voters, to, to basically suppress votes, seriously. GOP-controlled legislature, they fast-track bills according to kwwl.com. They place new limits on mail and early voting, reduce number of locations. It goes on and on and on. Republican Representative Bobby Kaufman, who is one of the bill's authors, said, quote, he, he responded to critics, he said, quote, what you call barriers, I call security. When you say that a sure count would disenfranchise 6,500 islands, I say I trust them to make a plan, end quote. Again, more nonsense. Texas, again, uses a bogus election security excuse. Their governor, Greg Abbott, declared election security was a top priority for the GOP-controlled legislature. Keep in mind, Abbott, Governor Abbott of Texas, conceded he admitted that there was no evidence of election fraud period and keep in mind there's the really the top kicker you got to remember the texas attorney general ken paxton who led the voter suppression i'm sorry the voter fraud allegations in court with a bunch of other republican uh, attorney generals from around the country falsely alleged voter fraud keep in mind Ken Paxton still faces felony charges himself. But Paxton conducted a 22,000-hour investigation on voter fraud, okay? According to NBC News, Texas GOP launches avalanche bills. Main, they only turned up in, in a voting base in Texas of 17 million people. Paxton only turned up 16 cases of alleged voter fraud. I'll say that again. In a voting base, in a Texas voting base of 17 million people, Attorney General Paxton only turned up 16 cases of alleged voter fraud, and those were for inaccurate addresses on voter registration forms. And this was after he conducted a 22,000 hour investigation that the taxpayers paid for. But Governor Abbott kept pushing, Texas Texas Republicans have introduced two dozen bills to place new restrictions on voters, including limitations on early voting, limitations on mail-in voting, drive-through voting, and also to accelerate purges of voting rolls. If you don't vote, you know, every single election, you just have to assume that your, your registration has been nullified. Keep in mind, this is all during the COVID pandemic. The same GOP state politicians who can't seem to help enact a vaccine rollout that's timely can waste time and money on this. this. Okay, It's outrageous. Um, There was a judge, Harris County Judge Lena Hidalgo, criticized the legislative moves of the Texas GOP. She called it out as, quote, a poll tax disguised as election integrity. It's clearly a direct response to the massive success we had in Harris County last year in terms of accessible and secure elections. End quote. I say, amen, Judge Hidalgo. So in conclusion, Public Citizen basically called out corporate America for the excuses they gave. All right? Public Citizen noted that even though Corporate America called out voter suppression. They kept giving money. And Public Citizen basically noted, quote, that any measure short of lifetime bans on donations to federal-level disenfranchisers likely amounted to nothing more than PR stunts, end quote. Okay? And they went on to say, quote, referring to corporate disavowal of these voter suppression bills, that, quote, it would amount to a meaningless gesture if corporations continue to bankroll the bill's supporters with future campaign contributions, end quote. And it's true. It's very, very true. So in conclusion, for years, progressive activists have denounced the role of corporate and PAC money in politics. The abuses have been so egregious that the slogan, pay to play, now fails to engender any denunciation beyond cynical snark. So the pay-to-play chieftains realize that progressive ideas and progressive plans are gaining foothold and traction in the mainstream public consciousness, with the exception of the hard, far-right GOP, in other words, the GOP of Trump. Subsequently, one of the few remaining tools in the corporate province, in the corporate toolbox, toolbox is legalized discrimination via a new gaggle of voter suppression laws, aka the new Jim Crow 2.0. There's nothing particularly new or profound about this corporate bankrolling of voter suppression and other anti-democracy strategies. At this point, it's painfully clear we must close all the loopholes regarding corporate bribery, a.k.a. donation, and make such corporate influence a criminal offense with mandatory jail time. We have to also declare voting rights to be sacred and to deny any legislature the power to limit voting rights, either by direct action or by stealth. Or, as public citizens Rick Claypool said, quote, from coast to coast, politicians, from coast to coast, politicians at corporate America help elect are pushing racist voter suppression laws. No matter how many PR statements big business puts out, its complicity with the anti-democratic forces that want to make voting harder is clear, Corporations keep their money out of our democracy, and Congress must put the people back in charge by, by swiftly passing the For the People Act, end quote, and I just end with saying Claypool is totally right. And that's
0: my report. Thank you very much, Janine. That was great. Thanks. I, it, I... All right, you guys, thanks for listening. We will catch you guys again next week.